Today I want to speak to you about godly living in a pagan society. And last week we just barely got through the introduction to our book in Titus. And uh, just want to do a little very, very uh, quick review of what we went over last week. And then we'll get into uh, this morning's uh, message as well. Uh, last week we, we looked at the author of the book who was the Apostle Paul, and uh, the letter identifies Paul as a servant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He was obviously knowledgeable about the society which he was ministering, and he also was anxious for the return of Christ. And we saw all that uh, last week. And uh, one thing that I just wanted to share with you this morning, when it comes to the apostle Paul, um, he, he really was a man who was touched by God in a special way. Uh, Previous to being called Paul, his name was Saul. And uh, he was a very uh, gifted student in Judaism. He became a Pharisee. He ultimately was a participant in the council's activities and whatnot. And the Bible tells us that one day a mob dragged in a man before the council upon which Paul sought, sat, and the Bible tells us that his name was Stephen, and that he was a deacon in the Christian church, and he had been speaking uh, blasphemous things were the charges against Moses and God, and they produced many witnesses to testify against Stephen, and when the high priest asked Stephen if these things were true, Saul heard Stephen give a very accurate and concise history, lesson about God's dealings with the Jews. It was very impressive. But then Stephen accused them of persecuting the prophets, of receiving the word of God but not obeying it. And Saul, the high priest, and the rest of the council became so agitated and so enraged against Stephen, they grabbed him, they dragged him out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they were going to stone him. And in preparation for this effort, they laid their robes at the feet of Saul. And they picked up these large rocks to throw. And Stephen was killed in this manner. In Acts chapter 8, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Stephen began, uh, uh, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And obviously, Saul was very zealous about his religious beliefs. He thought he was doing the right thing stamp out this Christianity. We're Jewish of our faith, and we don't want this Christianity around. And um, he'd get rid of these Christians one way or another. And he threatened them, and he promised that they would be persecuted, they'd be murdered. He approached even the high priest and asked for and received letters, giving him authority to arrest any Christians and bring them to trial in Jerusalem. And one day, as he was approaching the city of Damascus, The Bible says that there was a light that flashed in the sky. Acts chapter 9 tells us that he fell to the ground, verse 4, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord, was his response. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men, obviously, who traveled with Saul on this road just stood there uh, speechless. They saw a voice, but they didn't, or they, they heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he got up from the ground, it says that he was blinded. His eyes were open, but he couldn't see anything. And so he had to be led by the hand until they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, this man, Saul, sat in someone's house, unable to see. I don't know about you, but if there was one thing that I would hate to lose, it would be my sight. I feel like sometimes it's going rather quickly. <laughs> but and so he fasted and he prayed, and God gave him a vision. And the vision was that a man named Ananias would come in, lay hands on him, and his sight would be miraculously restored. And the man did arrive in Acts chapter 9. After laying hands on him, verse 17, it said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized and he took Food and was strengthened, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued, it says, to be amazed. And they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them, the Christians, bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul had become what he'd formerly persecuted, a Christian, a believer, a Christ follower. And that's what God does when he regenerates the heart. Even someone like Paul, who was out there killing Christians, was not beyond the reach of God's grace of God's saving hand. And so when you're praying for relatives, I just share that with you, a way of encouragement. Sometimes we pray for relatives or neighbors or friends. We think, oh, they'll never, they'll never come to Christ. Their heart's so hard. You know what? God can break through the hardest of hearts. We just keep praying. And we keep asking God and we keep living a testimony of grace and love before them. And eventually Christ, God, the Holy Spirit will open up their eyes. So Paul's the author of this book. He wrote to a guy by the name of Titus who was a pastor who was just beginning there. He was a convert of Paul. He was a companion of Paul. He was a comfort to Paul. And he was also a confidant, someone that shared a very close relationship with Paul. And we've gone all through this last week, so we're not going to go into detail. You can get the, the, the message from last week if you missed it. Um, Titus was probably from Antioch, Syria, where Saul began his missionary work. And uh, there's some other details that we uh, shared. But Paul referred to Titus as his son in the faith. He, he obviously must have led Titus to the Lord. Somehow God used Paul in this man's life. And he refers to him also as his brother in the faith, his partner, his fellow helper in the faith. The book was written around 62, 63. And it was probably written either in... Uh, 
the area of Macedonia or Ephesus. Um, we outlined the purpose of this book is to urge Titus, this guy who was left with these Christians in, in, in Crete, um, to set things in order, to make sure that the church was being run properly. Uh, he w- wanted to instruct Titus concerning the character of the men that were to be ordained as elders. He told El- Titus to appoint elders, and so if he was going to appoint elders, he'd need to know what kind of character these men had to be. He also challenged Titus to stand firm against the unchristian character of the Cretans, a very pagan society, and uh, to teach sound doctrine and to also establish for Titus personal qualities that he needed to build into the lives of these uh, Cretan believers. So chapter 1 deals with the great leaders, chapter 2, the good layman, and chapter 3, godly living by the church. And so Titus was given here a tremendous task by the Apostle Paul. And, uh, but he had dealt with previous people in Corinth, dealing with the same issues, some immorality issues, and some other things going on. So he was familiar with that. And so Paul basically wanted him to have a, a sound foundation, a solid uh, foundation upon which to help him begin this ministry here in Crete. And so he wants to share with them how he can live godly in such a pagan society. And if, if that's something that we can hopefully gain from today, from this message, is basically three simple statements that kind of go throughout the whole book. And yet, they're all summed up in the, in the first four or five verses. And, and so we want to look at these today, these, these principles, these statements that, that Paul makes to Titus. And they're all kind of focused around uh, the, the, the grace of God in some way. But it's very practical for us to, to understand these, these three things. And so let's read the first uh, four verses, and you can follow along. And then we will uh, uh, continue with our study. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child and in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. That's one long sentence. It's just a continuous sentence. And there's three things that we want to kind of point out here. The first thing is this. To be God's people in a pagan world, to live godly in a pagan world, we must be saved by grace. We must be saved by grace. Uh, The Bible says where sin abounds, grace, what? Abounds more. All right? The idea there is that God's grace superabounds. Even though we live in a sinful society, beloved, we look around and there's sin on every corner, on every billboard. We see things that are just degrading to the holiness of God. God's grace abounds even more. See, that's one of the, the glories of the gospel is that it is the power of God for salvation. Even in the most corrupt societies, no matter how bad things may get, The gospel still has the power of God to save the human soul. And so Paul wants Titus to understand this. 
He wants Titus to understand that, you know what, the power is found in God and God alone. It's not found in programs. It's not found in slick presentations. It's found in the power of the gospel. And so he packs all this theology into these open verses. And salvation, if you look at these couple verses here, one through four, is the dominant theme. And uh, we, ne- we need to remember that salvation is a, it's a uh, kind of a radical term, you might say. You don't save someone who is in pretty good shape and just needs a little bit of help. That's not the idea of salvation. The idea of salvation is that someone is saved when they are helpless, when they are hopelessly lost. There's no other means by which there's any intervention available for them. And they fall on their knees before a holy God. We need to remember the human race is dead to sin. It's dead. Dead in sin, I should say. Excuse me. Dead in sin. And only God has the power to raise the dead. Look at Ephesians real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. Now listen to this as we read this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That describes every human being on the face of the earth. I don't care who they are. But, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when, look at what it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me that anyone can think that there's even any good in a human being if not for the grace of God. Because humanity basically is spiritually blind. We're spiritually blind. That's what the Bible says. We can't see things that are um, spiritual in any fashion when we're in our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 says this. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the what? Unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Humanity, beloved, is spiritually blinded. They can't see. Only the God who spoke light into existence has the power to open their eyes. Just like only the God who is the one who can raise the dead has the power to cause us to live again. So where does this grace, this salvation come from? I want to make it very clear. Salvation is of God. It's not of man. Salvation is of God. It's not of man. Salvation is rooted. It has its foundation in God's choice, not our choice. And Paul, here in Titus, immediately, right out of the the blocks here, he states that salvation is rooted in God's choosing us and in his eternal promise of eternal life. In verse 3, he calls God our Savior. See it there? God our Savior. In the very next verse, he says, Christ Jesus our Savior. He does that three times throughout this book. He repeats it. God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Savior. What's he doing? He's putting Jesus Christ on the same level as God the Father. We serve a triune God. And the, tri- and the triune God is the only Savior available to us. There's no other way. And so when, when Paul here in this text, he says, For the faith of those chosen of God, Verse 1, he says, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle. Why am I doing this? For the sake of those of the faith of God's elect. That word for there really means for the purpose of. For the purpose of something. What is the reason? Why is he doing all this? Why is he, his life changed? Why does he have a new message? Why is all this happening? Well, there's a similar verse over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, that uses the same phrase. It says, For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. See, Paul labored, and we should all labor. Paul labored specifically as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a pastor, so that God's elect would come to salvation through Christ. That was his purpose. And he starts right out here at the gate. He begins by stating the fact of God's election. And he does so without explanation, and he doesn't even explain it. He assumes that both Titus and Timothy and most of his Gentile readers are going to understand and accept this truth that is basically on every page of Scripture. Unfortunately, today, we live in a society even in the American evangelical church as we know it today, they have a tendency to reject this very clear doctrinal point. And basically what they'll say is salvation is not rooted 
in God's choice of you. It's rooted in your choice of God. See, the truth is, beloved, that that salvation is not rooted in your choice of God. It's not. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Rather, it's, it's based on his sovereign choice of you. A lot of times they'll explain it and they'll say, you know what? God chose people for salvation because he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would believe. And so, because he could look down through the quarters of time and he knew who would choose him, he chose them based on their choice of him. But that would mean that what? God did not choose them. (laughs) That would mean that they chose him. It would also mean that God is not sovereign in determining his plan for the ages, but rather he is dependent upon man to decide. And then he kind of came up with his own plan according to our plan. That doesn't sound like a very sovereign God to me. It really makes man sovereign. It's a man-centered salvation. And God just agrees to whatever we decide to do. But the Bible is clear. That God does not choose people for salvation because he foresees what they would potentially believe. I mean, that would nullify his grace. Because it would make salvation depend on something good in us to make the right choice. The last time I checked, the Bible says there's none who does good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, we believe that dead sinners come to life and and believe because in His eternal purpose... God chose them for salvation. I'm not saying I understand it. I don't. But I know what the Bible teaches and I know what the doctrine teaches. It's on every page of Scripture. Salvation is not only rooted in God's sovereign choice, but secondly, salvation depends upon coming to the knowledge of the truth. Coming to the knowledge of the truth, which only God can impart. Look at what it says there in verse 1. That's what he says. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and what? Their knowledge of the truth. Their knowledge of the truth. For those who are chosen by God to come to faith, they must also come to the knowledge of the truth. You're not going to get saved out there worshiping a tree or something. It's not going to happen. You have to come to the knowledge of the truth. Saving faith must rest on what the content of truth is revealed through Scripture. That's why it's so important to stay in the book, to stay in the Word of God. Don't get off over here in somebody else's book or somebody else's thinking or whatever. Stay rooted in the Word of God. Because we believe this book to be God's truth, amen? If it's God's truth, then that's what we need to settle on. We don't need to be jumping around. Different opinions. A person must understand what Scripture teaches about God as being absolutely holy and about himself as being absolutely debased, absolutely a sinner before a holy God. 
He must understand that somehow Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, he came down, he was the incarnation. That he took the penalty that we deserved when he died on the cross. He must understand that God grants salvation as a free gift. Apart from any of our works or goodness in us. And that we must trust in Christ and Christ alone to save us. Now, Paul says very clearly that the natural man can't understand this. Can't get it. Can't get it through their head. They'll sit down and ponder it, maybe. But they can't understand it. He says it in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read that for you. He says, The natural person, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Even over in uh, 2 Corinthians, we already read that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says the same thing in verses uh, uh, 4 to to 6. And so, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. This, This means, what this means is no one can reason his way to salvation apart from God's divine revelation through the word of God. And through the power of the Holy Spirit. No one can understand God's revelation in the Bible unless God opens his eyes and his heart to the truth of it. Very basic principle. I remember before I was a believer, I'd get the Bible and I'd try to start reading the Bible because my brother said, you need to read the Bible. So I'd start reading the Bible. Didn't mean anything to me. I, I could read it and look at it. And to me, it was just a bunch of names on a page. And I just thought, you know what? This is crazy. Why am I reading this? And so it was important after I became a Christian, after I understood, okay, wow, it's not like all of a sudden I knew everything about the Bible. No, but when I read it, it meant something to me. God opened my eyes to it. Third thing there, salvation is the hope of eternal life, which only God can promise and impart. He says that there in Titus. He says very clearly, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of, right, eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Which was, by the way, look at what it says, promised before the ages began. Promised before the ages began. Some my translation, it says, in hope. The ESV says, in hope. Uh, really means upon. That word in the original language. This, the truth of verse 1 really rests upon the hope of eternal life. Hope could be understood in a couple different ways. It may refer to our hope in God's promise of eternal life. Or it may mean the hope which is eternal life. In other words... God's promise of eternal life is in itself a hope-filled promise. Eternal life is our hope. 
And biblical hope, by the way, is not something that's uncertain. You know, it's not like, boy, you applied for the job. Boy, I hope that I get the job. You know, you don't know. It's just kind of, that could be 50-50. You don't know. See, biblical hope is something that's absolutely certain. But it's not realized yet. The certainty rests on the character of God who promises this eternal life. It says there, which God who never, what? Lies. God never lies. God never lies. It's part of his character. He wouldn't be God if he did. He always speaks the truth. He's incapable of lying. And Jesus, by the way, who is what? The truth. He always speaks the truth as well. John 14, 6 tells us that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? On the other side, you have Satan, who is called the what? Father of lies. So you've got to ask yourself, okay, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe a truthful God who never lies? Or are you going to believe someone who's continually lying, disguised himself, deceptive, I mean, Satan even threw on Eve the lie that God's word is not true in the Garden of Eden. He told her that if she would eat of the forbidden fruit, whatever it was, she would be like God, able to discern between good and evil. And when she and Adam fell for that lie, that basically the human race was plunged into sin and, as a result, alienation from the God who created them. And ever since that time, people have fallen for the lie that somehow they can find peace, they can find happiness, they can find eternal life apart from the living and true God. And you notice here that God gave this promise when? It says a long time ago, before the ages began. Some translations say long ages ago. John Calvin understands that phrase to refer to God's promise of salvation to the human race right after the fall. Because before that, there weren't any people to give the promise to. (laughs) But I think Paul is even going back to the eternal purpose of God to show that he planned our salvation even before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 said. We just read it. Actually, we didn't read it, but we're going to read it right now. We read Ephesians 2, didn't we? Turn to Ephesians 1. Grandma eats pork chops. Okay, there we go. Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 4. Start in 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, who is he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wow. Nothing was here when he chose us. Yep, that's what it says. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he, what, predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of our will. What's it say? His will. 
You can't get around it. To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, unmerited favor, something we don't deserve, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, we didn't figure it out on our own, He sovereignly made it known to us the mystery of His will according to whose purpose? His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. As a plan, look at it, for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and in earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's a hope. We know we're going to get it. We just don't have it yet. To the praise of His glory. (coughs) Amazing section of Scripture. The promise was there before there were any people who needed the promise, beloved. That marks, that makes our hope of eternal life even more secure. Because it's rooted in in God's eternal promise. Uh, The salvation that only God could purpose or promise is nothing less than eternal life. And only He can impart it to us. God alone is the author of life. Life is part of who He is. When He created the world, it says that He breathed life into every living creature. Amazing. He created man as a living being. Created him in His image. And when man fell, he died spiritually. Spiritual death simply means separation from the life of God. Spiritually dead. We're alienated from a holy God. Spiritually dead people cannot will themselves into spiritual life. No matter how hard they try. The fact is, even they don't try because they're incapable of trying. So salvation, I just want you to understand, is nothing less than God raising us from the death of our sins into the life of His glorious forgiveness in Christ. William Barclay says this, The Christian gospel does not, in the first place, offer men an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers them life, the very life of God. So Paul establishes this coming right out of the gate, that salvation is of God, it's not of man. Well, you say, well, how does God's salvation come to lost sinners then? How do, how do we work through this? Well, look at the second thing in our outline here. The salvation comes to sinners through the proclamation of God's word. See, 
we in our logic think, well, if God is sovereign and he's worked this whole thing out, then that basically negates any need for evangelism. <laughs> the doctrine of election nullifies any need for evangelism. See, I would argue it establishes a need for evangelism. <laughs> it doesn't negate a need for an evangelism. We've already seen God has appointed Paul as an apostle. Why did he do all this? For the faith of those who are chosen in God. See, he labored so that God's chosen world would come to salvation. Last week, Dan and Corinne went out in their evangelism efforts. They went down to Safeway and they were talking to several people down there about their faith. Now, we could look at that and go, well, if God's got it all worked out, why would we even do that? Who cares? If they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved, right? That's what you're saying. But see, it's very clear that God has entrusted to Paul what he calls the proclamation of the word of God. The proclamation basically has its roots, that word has its roots in, in someone who is a message of the king's herald. In other words, the king would say, I need to get a message out to the people. And he would send a person out to the village as a herald or as someone to proclaim the king's message. That, that heralder would never go out there and say, you know what, I kind of forgot what the king told me to say. I'll just make something up. Okay, that's not going to happen. His head was on the line. He had to make sure that he had the message of the king clear. And he would go out and he didn't make up his own message. He didn't proclaim his own message. Rather, he faithfully would proclaim the king's message. See, that's what our job is to do when we give out the gospel. Those who disagree with the doctrine of election often say, if God chose all that will be saved, then we don't need to evangelize. We don't need to evangelize anybody. They'll get saved anyway. That's not right because God has determined the means for those people to be saved. And the means for those people to be saved, those people being the elect, is the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, we know that God has many elect who will certainly come to faith when they hear the gospel. Turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 48. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? Basically a presentation of the gospel. We're not going to take time to go through it, but that's what they just heard. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And, look at this, as many as were what? What's it say? Appointed to eternal life. What'd they do? They believed. They believed. Acts 18. 9 and 10. Acts 18, look at verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And then what does he say? This is God saying this. 
For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. What's he telling Paul? Hey, you know, I know you're going to get some flack here, but you just continue doing the work because there's still people that need to be saved here because I know, because I've already chosen them as my people. They just don't know they're my people yet (laughs) because they don't have the mind of God. Look at at John chapter 6. John 6 Look at verse 37. I mean, you just can't get around this. John 6, look at verse 37. It says, All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, will what? Come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. See, God has beforehand set out Chosen for himself. I don't know why he's chosen who he's chosen. I don't know how many he's chosen. Only God knows that. I don't know who he's chosen. I think it was Spurgeon that said the elect aren't running around with a big yellow stripe down their back. We don't know. That's why we need to go evangelize. That's why we need to go out and share the gospel with everybody. Hoping that some will believe. And those that believe are those that God has set his love upon. It should encourage us to evangelize, not discourage us. I mean, don't be afraid of the doctrine of election. It's something that's biblical. It's something that's there on every page. Just because we can't fully comprehend in our own logic how God did this or why he did it, I have the slightest idea. I'm not God. Some things remain a mystery, God says. But the fact that he chose me, I know he chose me because I'm saved. I know I'm saved because I see it evidenced in my life on a daily basis. I'm just thankful. On the other hand, if salvation is up to the fallen will of a dead man, someone who's blind someone who's rebellious, someone who's classified as a sinner, if that be true, if it's up to man's will to believe, the Bible is very clear, beloved, none will believe. Nobody will be saved. Look at verse, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 10. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. If... Salvation is left up to the will of man, sinful man. Look at what it says. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, their, their, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That does not sound like God is describing somebody who's eager to seek after God in their fallen state. Even over in, in John, Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 43. 843. Here, Jesus is telling them, you're the father of the devil. Jesus 42, he says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? He asked them the question. And then he answers it. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And it goes on. There's no good there. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, just keep on thinking about it. Maybe you'll figure it out. Salvation is something that God does on our behalf. That's why we need to come to God. We need to humble ourselves and realize the state of our sin. And the only way out of this pit of sin is through the grace of God. And that's why we ask God to save us. That's why we come to Jesus as a Savior. Romans 8. Look at what it says, verse 6. I mean, you might be sitting there going, man, he's really overdoing this. No, we need to understand this. We need to understand this clearly. Romans 8, verse 6 to 8, it says, For to set the mind of the flesh, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Look at what he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't have a will to do good. It cannot. Verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh, what's it say? Read it out. Cannot please God. Very clear. So if you believe that, that somehow God allows it up to us, fallen human beings who cannot please God, to make a decision for salvation, if that's what you believe other than the fact that God gave us salvation, granted it to us, saved us, based on his sovereign choice. If you believe that somehow it's up to the will of man to come to Christ, it's up to them to believe, don't go evangelize. Because you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. If you're thinking you're going out there trying to talk people into the kingdom of God, you're a waste of time. See, Paul viewed his calling as a preacher to the gospel as a commandment from God 
the Savior. And as he begins his letter here to Titus, he calls himself a bond servant. In other words, a slave is what the idea is. A bond servant basically meant in, in the, the, the society of the time you could be a, a slave for six years and in the seventh year you were set free. That was the whole plan that they had set up. You couldn't be a slave for eternity. But some of the slaves, after six years, the slave owner would say, you know what, you're free to go now. Our religious practices teach us this. You're free to go. Well, some of the slaves would look around and say, hey, I got a roof over my head. I got a job. I got a family that cares for me. And I got food on the table. Uh, what if I don't want to go? <laughs> you mean you still want to stay around? Yeah, I, I still want to work for you. All right, you know what? You're a bond slave now. You're a willing slave. You're somebody who's willingly staying here to work for me. That's what a bond slave is. He was under orders to preach the gospel. By the way, so are we. By the way, so are we. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 and 17. First Corinthians nine sixteen and 17. Paul's talking about surrendering his rights here. And he comes down to verse 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, or if I proclaim the gospel, same word there, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. He says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this on my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so not as to make full use of my right in the gospel? He was under orders to preach the gospel. We are under orders to preach the gospel. Yeah, but God knows who's going to get saved. Yeah, he does. But he wants to use you to go out there and proclaim to them the good news so that when that person who is elect by God before the foundations of the world that you don't even know responds favorably when you explain the gospel to them, wow, they are converted. Not because you're there doing some special talk with them, but because you're giving them the truth of the gospel and you're being obedient to God's call upon your life. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a neat process to be part of, I would think. It's a win-win. If you go out and someone rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. That's between that person and God. And we're out there just sowing seeds. We're just a link in the chain that leads them to Christ. Third thing there, see, salvation is by grace through faith. And it results in God's peace. Salvation is by grace through faith and it results in God's peace. There's so many people looking for peace. I mean, even on the world theater today, peace here, peace there. Everybody wants peace. But nobody wants to look to the right place. Paul greets Titus here and he calls him my true child in a common faith. True child means legitimate child. He probably led Titus to faith in Christ, as I said earlier. 
Common faith may refer to the Christian faith as a whole or to even both men's personal faith in Christ. We don't know. But the one thing that we do have when we come to Christ and we're saved gloriously out of our sin and we come to the Savior the way the Bible says, then all of a sudden when we meet other believers who are also saved from their sin, there's a bond there because we have a common faith. You can go on vacation and go to church and walk into a church. And if it's a church full of believers, what happens? You feel at home. You feel welcome. You, you, you sense a, a bond with those people in Christ. Grace and peace was Paul's common greeting. But it's more than a greeting. Grace sums up the gospel as opposed to all other world religions. All other world religions do not count on God's grace. They count on fear. They count on judgment. They count on manipulating people. Our faith teaches us that salvation centers on God's grace. Every religion apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on human merit and works. I don't care what faith it is. Across the board. And I think that's personally why sometimes people have a struggle with understanding the gospel. Wait a minute. So this man who's perfect came to earth. He died on a cross. They beat him up, ripped his back open, pulled his beard out, did all this horrible stuff to him, and he never did anything wrong. And now if I put my faith in what he did, somehow that's going to negate everything that I've done? Where's the catch? There's got to be a catch there. There's, you know, no free lunch. I mean, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? That's the glory of the gospel. See, who gets, who gets the glory if that message is true, if that we put our faith in someone who didn't deserve all the stuff that he went through, Christ, on a cross, and we put our faith and trust in him, and miraculously our sins and our debt of sin is freed from us, can we stand before God and say, yeah, I did pretty good, didn't I? I, I you know, I, I got rid of all that sin. I didn't. No, we can't stand there and say anything like that. We have to stand there crushed with humility saying, praise to you, Father, that has forgiven me through the work of your Son. I didn't deserve it. Why in the world did you save me? I had the slightest idea. But I know that you did, and I'm thankful. As opposed to somehow we work out our own Salvation through works. The gospel alone rests on God's unmerited favor, his grace to sinners, who, by the way, deserve every bit of his wrath. See, until you come to the understanding that you are under the wrath of God, you have no need for the grace of God. You know, you hear the, you hear the phrase in, in court sometimes, you know, I'm just going to come before and throw myself at the mercy of the court. What does that mean? And usually people that do that, they, they don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, okay, they're just going to try to be nice to the judge and hopefully maybe the sentence will be reduced somehow. The gospel alone rests in the unmerited favor of God. It also rests it results in the peace of God. It rests on the unmerited favor, the grace of God, but it 
results in the peace of God. If you want peace in your life, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we want to be God's people in a pagan world, we have to make sure that we're saved by His grace and that we proclaim the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Well, does that mean that because we're saved by grace, that once we're saved, we're free to do whatever we want? No. Number two here, to be God's people in a pagan world, we who are saved by God's grace must engage in good deeds. I mean, this is kind of a a second major theme throughout this whole book. The first one is, hey, we're saved by the grace of God. But the second one is, because we're saved by the grace of God, we better be about doing the business of good deeds, of good works. All that know Christ are God's servants, are God's bond servants. See, Paul doesn't begin his letter here. You know, the right Reverend Dr. Paul addresses now. The Honorable Apostle, no. Well, the, the wonderful author of most of the New Testament and Christian conference speaker, no. It cracks me up sometimes you go to these seminars and you hear these guys being introduced. And you think that the person introducing the person would just have a little more tact. Because sometimes they go on and on. And you can tell the speaker's even uncomfortable. You know what he says? He says, you know what? Paul, a slave of God right here. Bond servant of Christ. It was a title applied to Moses and several other prophets. So maybe he's trying to identify himself with the Old Testament saints to establish some credibility here with the Jewish people that he was uh, the critics that were really plaguing this little church. But if you're a child of God through the new birth, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6 says very clearly that you have been bought with a price. We have too many Christians running around too worried about their own rights. You know what? A slave doesn't have any rights. As God's bond slave, you are under orders to obey and serve him, whether you understand what he's called you to do or not, whether you feel comfortable with what he called you. You know, so many times, sometimes stuff needs to get done, even in the the church. You know, positions need to be filled or people need to help or whatever. And you ask people, well, you know, let me, let me pray about that. Sometimes I just want to say, you know what? Why don't you just do it? Quit praying about it. Just do it, for goodness sakes. It needs to get done. If you don't do it, somebody else is going to have to do it. What are you going to pray about it for? I just don't understand that kind of mentality. Because we're called here to serve one another in the body of Christ. Sorry, that was just a little side thing. A little passionate about that. We're all God's bond servants. Secondly, the truth that we know now leads to godliness. 
He says, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Same thing for the intent, for the purpose there. We've all been saved by God's grace. We're all God's workmanship, Ephesians tells us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Titus, throughout the book, we're going to see that he emphasizes good deeds, good works. There's nothing wrong with good works. Good works are good as long as you're not putting your trust and your faith in your good works to save you. As a Christian, you better have some good works. If you don't have any good works as a Christian, I would have to say, I don't think you're a Christian. Very clear. I mean, it's a tragedy when someone professes to be a Christian, but he disgraces the gospel through dishonesty or immorality or whatever, ungodly character. I'm not saying we don't all make mistakes. We all sin. We're all in this boat together. Don't get me wrong. But God's people should display, for the most part, godly behavior for the world to see. How do we do all that last thing? To be God's people in a pagan world, we must submit ourselves to the authority of the local church. This is a point that goes over like a lead balloon. Because authority is not a popular concept in our society today. I mean, we have a nation basically that was founded on rebellion, Independence Day. I mean, you know, authority in a way scares us. We think of dictators or mind-controlling cults. And we see him work through this text And you have to understand the way God set this up, beloved. First, there's God the Father who gives his commands. He says that in verse 3. He is the supreme sovereign of the universe. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, willingly, he submits himself to the Father's will to carry out the divine plan of redemption. Then you have the apostles, of which Paul was one, who were under the authority directly of Jesus Christ, who were delegated authority over the churches. And then the church was founded on the apostles, it says, and the prophets. And after the foundation was laid, those two offices ceased to exist because there's no need to have them around because the foundation was laid. Any modern sense of apostle only refers to one who is sent out. We're all apostles in a general sense, but we're not apostles in the way that they had the office of apostle. And as we see, the authority of the local church is vested in the plurality of men who are called elders or overseers. We're going to get into that next week. They're not free to lord over the church. We're not here to tell you how to live or what to do or what to wear or how to dress. But rather, we're here to serve under the authority of God and under the authority of his word. And whether you like it or not, the entire church is subject to that. Just as we need proper parental authority in the home to bring up children to maturity, so in the family of God we need the authority of godly elders to help people grow in godliness. Closing, let me ask you, have you been saved by God's grace? I had a person ask me one time, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? The biblical answer simply is this. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? 
If so, that didn't come from you. It came from God. God opened your eyes. God raised you from spiritual death. He granted you faith. He granted you even the repentance to believe. And if you're saved, there'll be evidence in your life of a new heart. You'll love God. You'll want to get to know him better. You'll love God's people. You'll hate sin. You'll want to conquer it. Secondly, are you seeking a life, seeking to live a life of good deeds because of what God has done for your soul? Do you live to please him every day or do you live to please yourself? And thirdly, are you committed to and in submission to a local church where God's word is honored and the gospel is preached? See, this isn't the only church on the block. My point is simply that Christians are called to be part of a local church. We need to honor the teachings of God's word in the way that we practice our faith on a daily basis. Father, we thank you for your word here today. And Lord, we we pray that you would help us to understand these truths that were set before us. That we have to be saved by God's grace. There's, There's... no other way. Uh, and if we are saved by God's grace, we should be able to perform good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do. And also to submit to those in authority over us. Father, I pray if there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that, Lord, that you would show them their need. Lord, only you can, can reveal to them uh, their need of a savior and so lord we pray that you would do that in a supernatural way even today and for us believers i pray that we would never fail to forget the the call that we have to go out to these four walls and to make christ known to those who've yet to believe father that we'd be faithful to our calling father we thank you and, and we we do praise you in jesus name amen